All right, guys, we've all been there. It's client feedback time. You're sitting in the cozy confines of your edit suite, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into the messy world of rendering, encoding, uploading to Dropbox, and emailing the clients. It's crazy. That is until today. The Whipster review panel for Adobe Premiere Pro lets you send your edit to your clients without leaving Premiere. Whipster does all the encoding, uploading, sharing, and collating of feedback behind the scenes. Sit back and relax as the comments appear directly in your Premiere Pro timeline as markers. It's seamless, smooth, and speedy. It's a revolution in collaboration. To find out more and to install the review panel, head to whipster.com. So check it out. It's the Whipster review panel for Premiere Pro at whipster.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and today I'm excited because we're going to be interviewing Nicholas Munsur and Nicholas cut Keanu, which is a hilarious film from Key and Peele. And he also worked on Key and Peele, the show, and as well as Drunk History, and so it was just an exciting, amazing opportunity to talk to him about Keanu, because I found that film very funny, especially the tone shifts that you see between the characters as well as between the moments, something uh, a lot of editors should check out for comedy. And of course, this couldn't have been possible if it wasn't for Jody McVeigh Schultz. If you remember, I interviewed him about his feature that he directed, as well as for Drunk History. Without his help, we wouldn't have been able to get in touch with Nick, so big shout out to Jody. With all that said, here's my interview with Nicholas Munzer about Keanu. When I was doing my research about you, you've also got a bit of an art background. So I was wondering if you could tell me what you do in the various arts and graphic design and, and how that helps you in the editing process. I guess I never intended to get into film exactly. I had always watched an insane amount of film and television and various things, but uh, never really thought about it as a profession, partially because my, my members of my family worked in it and I was never, it would never seem particularly romantic to me. So I went to art school and I, I kind of had a a bit of trouble focusing on anything. I went to an art school where you don't have to pick a major. So I was doing photography, set design, life drawing, you know, everything. I, I was mostly focused on like sculpture and then set design and theater. Ended up videotaping a lot of performance stuff and then editing it, learning to edit. I like working with other people, but if I think I can do if I think I can learn how to do something better than how I see people doing it around me, I will. And I'll just start doing it, even if that wasn't <laughs> what I intended to do. So I just noticed that I was like, you know what? I think I can figure out how to edit these things better. So I just spent a lot of time on that because I guess, you know, I get into the technical side. So And design, too, was sort of like, you know, I've, I've played in bands. I've done art shows. And I was like, you know what? I can design this thing better <laughs> <laughs> than what I see around. So uh, I just put a lot of time into that stuff and then sort of throughout school was working, doing odd jobs, editing and doing design. Mostly, a lot of the time just for favors, you know, I think. And that's often what I tell people who are like, how do I get into this or that? I'm like, just do endless favors for people because at some point <laughs> one of them will you. come back and say, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or they'll, they'll just say, like, That'll that'll come back around. It might take yeah. years, but it it'll happen if you do enough favors. So that's sort of how it worked with me. But I mean, I think both performing arts and fine arts, especially a kind of design sense, come in very useful in editing for sure and filmmaking. Just 
from abstract things like rhythm and composition to more just like literal, like knowing those programs, knowing sort of technical aspects of sound recording and things like that, or, um, you know, just design tools like come in very useful. And especially when you're starting out, because people expect you these days to be able to do everything, edit the music, edit, do the graphics all of that yeah well it's it's crazy these days whereas before you would just focus 100 percent on the story now you have to do small effects and sound designs for your rough cut what's funny to me is that those sort of quote-unquote better jobs you get editing the less you need to know that stuff (laughs) (laughs) because i think my generation and ones going forward we all learned on the programs doing it ourselves so like i have directors who do graphics, you know what I mean? Like they'll get on and do their own graph. Like everybody expects that now of my generation and younger, but the more sort of prestigious gigs you get, the less they expect you to do that. They just, they just want you to focus on the picture editing more, which makes sense, you know, because there's someone else who's spent a lot more time learning those other crafts. Now you, one of your early jobs is with drunk history and then you sort of transitioned over to key and peel sketch. So what did you learn about comedy editing in the drunk history phase of your career that, uh, uh, that you yeah. took with you? Well, it's funny. I, uh, the creator of Drunk History, one of the creators of Drunk History, Jeremy Connor, is one of my oldest friends. So we kind of, I mean, I feel like I learned comedy from my friends, basically, or we learned it together. So that, I mean, I was around, you know, like when they were doing the web the earliest yeah, yeah. web ones. I helped them with a couple early on. So that was, so it was a very natural thing to me. Also, I had edited mostly up to that point, very serious documentary things or nonprofit PSA type things. So the radio edit was something I was very familiar with crafting sentences that nobody ever actually said, doing really fine dialogue editing to get things to work for timing or for content. But I guess comedically, I mean, Jeremy and Derek are just hilarious people and the other editors there that I worked with and the people that they interview are all extremely funny. And it's a nice thing to work on something like a sketch show like Kim Peel or Drunk History where it's not just one kind of humor. There's so many voices involved that you get to try and figure out how to match in the editing what's funny about one person's sense of humor than another person's totally different sense of humor. And it's never just sort of one style all the time. There's so many voices, especially in drunk history, literally voices. <laughs> so when you got into the Key and Peele sketch, what, I mean, as you were saying, like the, they, Key and Peele have very different voices, but they work together so well. So what did you take from the sketch show that you brought into the feature? I mean, the main thing was working with Peter Atencio, the director there. He really... <laughs> There's something very nice about working with somebody who knows exactly what they want, but also gives you the freedom to surprise them and do it the way you want to as well. Because you know that at the end of the day, if you can't come up with something, they'll have an answer. (laughs) Like, it's not just going to be bad if you don't figure it out because they'll know what to do. But at the same time, you can totally surprise them bring them something they never thought of and that'll end up in the finished product so the sort of confidence to not feel like you are being disrespectful by throwing away what they (laughs) started with and trying something totally different on a whim was something really exciting and liberating working on uh kim peel not that i mean that's true 
I think that's been true with most of the piece things I've been lucky enough to work on. But it sounds like a, like you're a part of the creative process. Were you allowed to sort of throw in ideas and play it off with the director, or did you have to always go to Key and Peel in this in sketch show just to make sure? Well, they were really great on that show about working democratically. I came in on season five or four B or whatever they ended up calling the last season, and that even with the other editors, it was all very democratic because sketches just sort of get handed out as they come in to the various editors. So there's no real ego involved. And you're always walking into the other editors' rooms looking at how they're doing what they're doing, partially because you want to give the show a bit of cohesion, but also just like comedy is usually funnier when you're sort of constantly subjecting it to (laughs) other people's opinions. You know, like the way stand-ups like to test that material, like yeah. we definitely, like you need to have people look at it. But then also, you know, the producers and Keegan and Jordan and Peter, all they would, we'd all pile into an edit bay and watch stuff. And I mean, they're all incredibly fun people, but watching an edit with Keegan, Michael Key is maybe one of the most <laughs> amazing experiences as an editor. Why, why is that? What is, what is it he will get so excited about certain I mean I'm sure it's like this on set too I've only been on set <laughs> but in an edit bay he will get so excited by a joke like he will he's pu- pushed me off my chair laughing so hard like he will just shove me off my chair or he'll get up and run around the entire office suite and come back <laughs> he'll punch the wall you can hear the laughter for He's just a very exuberant guy. Um, and that's the, you know, that's like crack for an editor. Like you've, you've, you've just toiled away on some idea and then somebody gets that excited about it. It's, it's great. Um, and, and you guys so, didn't videotape this ever? <laughs> I, you know, there were days that like when I wasn't there where one of the other editors, Neil Mahoney, who got me the job, actually, he also worked on Drunk History great editor he he would show me he would there was a day like when they were watching a sketch i'd edited when i wasn't there and he recorded the audio of keegan reacting and 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 text messaged it to me just so i could (laughs) enjoy the experience but then that led to this whole thing which is a long story that i won't get too into but when you ask about like you know this is just proof of that they really accepted collaboration there's a there's one ridiculous Kim Peel sketch, which might be my favorite sketch of all time, mm-hmm. not because of my involvement, just their performance as these two guys who hijack a plane sort of as like self-nominated TSA or like federal air marshals yeah. with 3D printed guns and box cutters and stuff. But Keegan just makes up this language in it in which he says if any terrorists get on board, he's going to drax them squounced. <laughs> and that became this catchphrase around the office because it, was, it makes no sense. You have to watch it for it to be funny, obviously. But anyway, I tacked on this ending to it because there wasn't there was an ending, but I just thought this this sketch is so insane it needs to go one step further in insanity. Uh, so I just t- made up this ending of it being like a quiz for a like a TSA exam with a multiple choice test at the end just to make Keegan laugh because I knew that when he came in and watched it, if, if there was a surprise ending, he would, he would be so caught off guard. The reaction would be great, but it ended up staying in the finished 
sketch. And that became this kind of pattern that went on uh, where you had to be careful, actually, of like I had you, if you make a joke in the editor room, it very well might stay in the final thing. So, yeah, that and that became known as, you know, Draxing them squounced. And any time <laughs> I would see Keegan, he'd be like, you Drax them squounced today? And I'd be like, yep, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> and then we made t-shirts we're you know nerd so how did you get on to the film for keanu you're just dumb bravado hey <laughs> i mean i'd never done a future uh studio feature before i'd done little independent things and i'd brushed up against it before and floated my name and asked but it always seemed like a kind of a separate world and in general with things you know they'll people are loathe to give a job to somebody who's never done it before because they have no way to know if you'll mess it up. So it just seemed like a tough nut to crack. But Peter and I, Peter Atencio, the director, like hit it off pretty fast and well on Kim Peel. So I just read in like, you know, some variety or something that Keanu had been greenlit. I knew they had film projects in the works, but that I just read it and I was like, so I just emailed Peter immediately and just said, look, I know we haven't been working together very long, but I just want to throw my hat in the ring. I have no idea what the chances of that of that are, if you'll have any say, but this is me saying I'd like to give it a shot. So it's just as soon as I heard about it, I just said, why not at least try? And then he totally surprised me by talking to them and convincing them to hire a first time feature editor when he was a first time feature director. So that's all credit to him. And then New Line cinema was the executive the post exec there jody levine was very open to that idea as well she liked the idea of the whole team coming from Kim peel and wasn't you know scared of the idea of a first-time feature editor so i, I feel like when Kim peel wrote this they saw you know the keanu film where he has to get revenge for his dog and then they saw the book Save the Cat for script writing and just mashed the two together. Was there a lot of references to Save the Cat in the cutting room? I think I, well, okay, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a complicated lineage there, because, and it, it does mess with your mind because you're like, surely they were thinking of John Wick. John Wick came out uh, like a year after they'd written the script. Oh, wow. So that's just zeitgeist. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how how that happens something about Keanu and a cute animal was just floating in the ether. And, but, uh, and that they save the cat was probably on Jordan and Alex Rubens who wrote the script, but they weren't around too much in the editing room just because Jordan, you know, they're like the busiest people on earth yeah, right now, the amount of projects they have going on. He was directing his own feature. So they would, give notes, but it was, there wasn't a lot of hanging out, but there was a phase when the studio, or maybe it was the marketing department of Warner Brothers, somebody started to get a little nervous about the name Keanu <laughs> as a movie title. I don't know if it's Google ability or what, but this, we started to become aware that they might try and pull a name change, which we're all very tied to the idea of the movie being named Keanu, because that's just what it should be called. Uh, but we started hearing rumors. So we started our own in-office list of kind of joke alternate titles, many of which are just horrendous puns, but <laughs> there's also some very Any stick in your <laughs> mind, or? good titles. Well, Save the Cat was definitely one of them because that <laughs> just seems so obvious and would be a good film nerd joke. There's some horrible off-color ones. Yeah, of course. <laughs> one of them we thought was the worst. The studio actually 
purportedly came close to naming the movie. I don't want to say because, I, <laughs> but, but you know, we thought we had come up with the dumbest joke ever, and they were actually found in some other room in Burbank, being like, "Hmm, that might be actually be a good title." So you never know. I think feline AIDS was my favorite. A I D E S. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Keanu, Keanu's pretty good. To live in Meow in LA, there's two, there's a million. I don't know where that list is. You know, going from a sketch show where you have these small, tight, seven-minute, ten-minute sketches, or even, you know, three-minute sketches, to a feature-long mm-hmm. film is a big jump. So what were some of the changes you had to make to, you know, all of a sudden you have to stretch a story out for, or not stretch it out, but work you know, the sure. the different parts of it to make it work for an hour and a half or two hours. So what what did you have to overcome to, to achieve this with Keanu? Well, honestly, and I mean, at the risk of sounding <laughs> like, I don't know, overly confident, it was just an enormous relief for me because features were all I ever really thought about when thinking about editing conceptually or learning about it or, you know, uh, sketch things and other formats shorts and music videos and what have you like are all really fascinating and I I can get into it but I feel like I have a bank of of thoughts about how to edit features and and feature structure and feature storyline that I can never match in anything else that's just what I've thought about the most so that was mostly just a, a huge relief to me to be able to like finally kind of stretch out and play in that arena also you know I and I I think I don't know where this quote originated, but I think it maybe it was probably Peter Atencio, but there was this line around Kim Peele that was like, these sketches are supposed to be the like five funniest minutes of a feature length film. A lot of them have this cinematic quality, but to be honest, uh, that show in particular, like the sketches, sketches never, it never, Sometimes you would have to shorten things to fit into the act length, but a lot of the time they really, they came up with ideas that kind of got to live in feature time. Like if you, there, there is a feeling when you click into some of those sketches that you are watching an excerpt of something much longer because rhythmically a lot of them aren't edited in the kind of hyper active world of like grab your attention immediately in 30 seconds like they really take the time they're supposed to take and that's sort of unique so i i don't think there was as much adjusting if anything the (laughs) the trick was getting it down to a manageable length because they really they shot so much (laughs) keanu my my first cut was something like two hours and 40 minutes. Wow. And that was, you know, that was just with every scene as it was shot. There wasn't, I didn't add anything. <laughs> so there was just, there was an abundance of riches to, to cut down from. And then they had just done their work already. That was not a, a hard thing for me. I know they had to make sure that now they're playing characters that, exist over a three-act arc and you know keep track of their motivations but they had done it already i didn't i didn't have to do too much of it you got to watch performance a bit their performers like to give a spectrum you know not every take is the same energy they give you a sort of palette to work with would they add lib any or oh god yes um (laughs) it's a sort of in between it's not the kind of improv run style where they 
give you endless alts. It's sort of a thing where they sort of find as they're shooting the kind of the the line as it plays best given the reality of the shoot. Like, you know, on paper, it may have sounded great one way, but now that we're here on the day, maybe we should change these few words. So I'd say like almost no line is as it was in the script, but it's all, it's not just a complete deviation either. It's just a sort of like honed version. So yeah, I mean, they they would come up with things on the spot a lot. Now I have to ask, because one of the things that I thought was fantastically done was the shifting of tones, even down to something mm. as simple as them being, you know, their suburbanite selves to all of a sudden having to pretend to be black. But the scene mm-hmm. that sticks out that I think is one of the best moments this year so far in comedy is the uh, van scene juxtaposed with the drug deal with at Anna Ferris's house. Oh God, that's so, that's great to hear. That that was a section that we labored over. Well, I was going to ask if you could take me through your cutting process for that. Like, how do you? balance those two tones because they're so drastically different like there's someone's life's on the line and someone's listening to george michael in the car mm-hmm. so i was wondering if you could take me through how you approach that scene it's in the script in a way that's not radically different they had already figured out a lot of the tone and a lot of what's funny there is that i i think is that is like you're saying the the contrast between what's happening it's also something about setting up expectations and how they play out. And I think that Keegan, Jordan, Peters, and Alex's sort of senses of humor all have a lot to do with like being very familiar with cinematic language and audience expectations. So they're always kind of playing with that, even when you're not really, even when it isn't the focus, they're always aware. And so I think that that section well, there's a lot of sections, but that section is definitely sort of playing with your expectation of what's going to happen and then making making it humorous how it ends up playing. I don't really want to give anything <laughs> away there just because it's yeah. supposed to come completely out of left field. And it's one of my favorite audience reactions yeah. is the end of that drug deal scene. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was like in the theater you saw it, but oh, every it time great. we've watched it with an audience, it's just, it's a, it's such a strange reaction and that's, that you would not expect necessarily when writing it or directing it or anything you might hope for it but well you were saying you labored over it so what was what were some of the issues it was well for one the scene inside the house there's an obvious reference there to to boogie nights and we're not obvious I, I mean i guess it's just sort of unhidden reference to, to boogie nights and just like this kind of scene in movies that they clearly love that we love where it's all of a sudden a kind of newly introduced character just sort of steamrolls in and takes over and you don't know what to expect because this the movie is now sort of in the hands of this unknown quantity like the alfred molina scene in boogie nights and a million others but that was definitely on their mind and so because of that i think like a lot of the way they shot it and wrote it and performed it and directed it was all I, I think a lot of the references in that scene in their mind or a lot of the inspiration was from these films that are very kind of a uh, tourist, like a Tarantino sort of film or a PT Anderson or something where you feel a kind of director's voice, but this is a studio comedy. So <laughs> we have to somehow get that past a whole bunch of producers, a whole bunch of studio execs <laughs> when we're trying to do something that has this style of being slightly more 
unhinged and um, kind of unexpected. So I'll just say that, you know, like we went through pretty much every structural variation you can imagine on that of swapping the order of every scene, taking every beat out and putting it back in again to test what's it like without that beat? What's it like with that beat at the end? You know, that was, we had, you know, we had boards and outlines, but I think that sequence is probably the one that we had, you know, and we had an entire wall at one point of post-its of just about every line (laughs) that we were visualizing what it would be like in various orders and then trying it. And also it's a movie that it's a sequence that uh, depends a lot on the soundtrack and that we had our idea of what the music is that they're listening to and having their weird Hollywood yeah. Hills drug hangout uh, yeah. to. We, we tried, you know, at one point it was all like Riot Girl, yeah. kind of, uh, which we thought was sort of funny with the Dick Taker yeah. scene. But there were so many variations there as well. And then it became about what's clearable and what, you know, it, uh, that, that one went through so many tunnel shifts and through some of our first test screenings, that sequence at the beginning was the one that people kept saying, I don't, I love the movie, but that one, I don't know what that was about, yeah. or that was my least favorite, or that one was the slowest. And by the end, it was often the one that people cited as their favorite. Or So I feel like we somehow, through that crazy process of trying everything, something came out the other side that was working the way we wanted it to. And it actually ended up being pretty close to how it was written. <laughs> Go figure. Jordan and Alex know what they're doing. You kind of touched on the the test screenings and what have you. And I don't know if you had this in your test screenings, but there's a moment at the end of the film, and I don't want to give anything away, where you cut to Key and Peele saying, what? And they're all sort of shocked. Sure. And in our screening, like when we went to the screening, pretty much it felt like the whole audience went, what? at the end at the same time like it was almost like verbatim like we all did it simultaneously yeah and it sort of brings up this issue of like how important the audience is in making a comedy because they have to come along for the ride so did you rely on the test screenings a lot for feedback and and how did you work with that information that was sort of an a new experience for me just because they don't have the time or the luxury usually in Comedy Central shows to do that or on indie features or documentaries or most of the things I'd worked on. So I think it can be a little intimidating if you, well, it, it entirely depends on the attitude the director and the studio has towards it. I mean, you essentially have to take it as seriously as they do because if they take it seriously, you got to figure out how to interpret it and, and work from it. But my own opinion about test screenings is that it's a great added tool in your toolbox. If there's something on the fence that you're not sure, especially in a movie like this, which or a lot of comedies that work via kind of building a sort of pattern of jokes and then callbacks to those jokes and then sort of doubling up on those jokes. There's a few lines in the movie that sort of happen organically and then later you realize were very important. And an audience reaction could be good to know like, okay, that that moment definitely registered. They remembered the callback from the first act clearly because without it, there would be no reaction. So there's things like that that work, but it's also dangerous because there's a lot of types of humor, I think. And I think he and Peel and Peter are really adept at some kinds of humor that don't necessarily get big bodily guffaws, you know, from an audience, but they are in many ways more important (laughs) and you can, 
you should be having like the best time with your just jaw open watching them perform sometimes and not even necessarily. I think you just have to be careful and you interpret that stuff. And, you know, they, they do think, you know, they record it all. They give it to you. We ingest it and you, you have a video and the audio that you can lay in right under your movie and compare it. And like, that's, fine that's all great if you need it but i just think that you have to be careful and not make too much out of it especially if your goal is not necessarily the sort of constant just laugh a minute style which i personally find a bit exhausting and usually i usually leave movies that i think are built on that maximum laugh quotient kind of <laughs> style where I imagine they took test screenings very seriously and punched up endlessly. I usually leave those experiences kind of like comedically numb, just sort of like, you know, okay, I guess I just watched a movie. I don't know. I was sort of just, you know, wiggling the whole time while watching it, giggling, but not, you know. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a mixed blessing, the ability to do that. I think it's definitely useful when if you have the luxury to do it i just think you have to be careful not make too much of it oh i was gonna ask too about and i don't know if i'm asking this right but working with visual sight gags can be difficult because it's usually just it's just a shot of something so how do you if Mm -hmm. it's falling flat how do you work with that to get it to impact the audience more like i I think about them in cheddar's room for the first time and when Mm -hmm. they sit in the chairs and Mm -hmm. the chairs are really really low it's just such a simple psychic but it works great at that moment uh yeah i mean i again have to you know i write on big coattails like peter and and jess (laughs) they know what they're doing when they're setting up a shot and getting rehearsing and blocking it and then figuring out how to shoot it in the way that that captures whatever is funny about it. They give us a lot of, you know, we have a lot of choices by the time we're editing. So yeah, that's, you know, that's what keeps it interesting is I, I'm always weary to, of thinking that we have it figured out. Like there's some kind of equation for editing comedy, like comedies on the wide or whatever it is, or for don't worry about continuity. Just like, I'm just, I never want to have a theory because that would, then it would just be painting by numbers when we're editing it. I think we have to try it and see. (laughs) And yeah, I think it has something to do with expectations too. I think I will say, I mean, while I, in direct contradiction to what I just said, uh, comedy is very often on the wide. (laughs) And I think partially that has to do a, when we have, when we're working on a film that was shot beautifully, I think by Jess and Peter, like they, we know it's going to play on a giant screen and we have the ability to kind of, we don't have to fret so much about making sure people catch whatever it is. Like sometimes the funniest way to reveal something is very Mm -hmm. subtly, you know, just in the corner of the screen. A lot of times, especially with in this movie, because a lot of the humor is coming from sort of not just what Keegan and Jordan are doing, but the, the people standing around looking at them confused or, the tension of not knowing if they're going to buy it or not. And that kind of nervous laughter, the, the big, bigger wides, the more atmospheric, like feeling the room and the energy in the room can really amplify some of those moments, I think. But then there's other times when you just can't beat a facial reaction on a close up for really punching something up. But uh, we tried to avoid the kind of reliance on just like these sort of, 
what feel a bit like crutches. I think these kind of just like always cutting to any funny reaction on a face to sort of sink a punchline in. I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone I interview, and that's what's your favorite mm-hmm. guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh man. I knew, I knew you asked this and then I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think I was like, Oh, I'll come up with a great answer for that later. And then didn't, um, well, in general, I think anything sci-fi fantasy, I can just, I don't know why I can watch any, I just can get into all the, you know, like, well, how do they think money works in the 28th century? <laughs> like whatever yeah, yeah. I can get into any of that. And in particular, I, I have a soft spot for anything just really just completely fearlessly epic, even if it falls flat on its face. So I, you know, Chronicles oh, of Riddick. It's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> Jupiter ascending, you know, these like, just like, whatever, like, we're just gonna do it. Kind of crazy. Yeah, sure. I could always end, end endless sci fi. <laughs> Thanks so much for letting me interview. Sure. Thank you. It was a blast. So that was my interview with Nick. Now, I'd like to thank Nicholas Monsieur for taking the time to answer all our questions. And of course, I also want to thank Jody McVeigh Schultz for putting us in touch. If you have any questions, you can always get in touch with us info at aotg.com or of course through social media twitter.com slash aotg network or on facebook facebook.com slash aotg network i'm your host gordon burkell thanks for listening